Hi, my name is Eliane Goldstein, and you're listening to The Effect on Us. When I went downstairs to play with the kids with whom I'd played all my life, all of a sudden they're calling me a dirty little Jew and to walk in the sidewalk where I belonged. I had the courage to say, I have to get out. I was just so infused with the will to live that I said, I don't mind leaving my parents. Do you experience any pain from what they would do? Every single second of my life, and I will for the rest of my life. The Effect on Us podcast. Here's Eliane Goldstein. The Effect on Us is a podcast for people of all ages to learn about controversial subjects and the ties it has to people nowadays. In this season, the focus of the series is the Holocaust. You'll be able to hear some of the best survival stories I've ever heard from people that went through the Second World War and learn more about the effect the Holocaust had on people from Generation 1 to Generation 3. Did you know that of the 9 million Jews living in Europe when the war began, only 3 million were alive when it ended. This is the last part of a four-part series where I talked to Ben Lester, who really went through it all, surviving two death trains, Auschwitz, and so much more. And suddenly you see the skyline of New York Harbor. You see the, the sky, skyscrapers, the skyline. We've never seen anything like that. We come to New York Harbor, beautiful, and they started to unload us, to unload us. And my sister Lola and Michael and Tashi were all waiting. They couldn't even get into the waiting room where so many people, so they waited by the door outside the waiting room. And I couldn't, I looked around the waiting room, I couldn't find them. I started to get worried. And then suddenly I noticed them and that reunion and my God coming to America. What a good feeling it is. What a good feeling it was. We're free people in the land of the free. So what happened in America? I think I will continue in a little, a little bit longer. I lived with my sister Lola. And I went to school, night school, but I had to work during the day because we needed the money to make a living. So Lola and Michael were Orthodox, their religion, Jewish Orthodox. I also was brought up Orthodox, but after the war, I lost my religion. I believed somewhat, but not not as strong a believer in Judaism as my sister and her husband, Michael. And they uh, were Orthodox, so every uh, Sabbath uh, they didn't work. Sabbath they, they would only go to, to temple and they would sleep and they would relax, rest, and no, no work at all, nothing. They were avid smokers, both of them. So was I. But they were able to stop smoking during the Sabbath, Friday night and Sabbath, all day, because of the religion. You're not allowed to light a fire or something. So they can hold it back. And I had a hard time with it. Remember, smoking in those days was was uh, vogue. It was it was. The thing to do, if you didn't smoke, you didn't belong 
most groups, everybody smoked. In Germany, my God, and, and the Jewish Federation provided us with cigarettes. The Germans were dying for cigarettes. They would give you anything for a cigarette, for, for a puff, for a smoke. So we could buy anything we wanted in those days with the cigarette. So I smoked because all the we would get all the cigarettes I remember. I would get cartons of Palmel, three, four cartons at a time. So obviously I couldn't stand it. Sabbath not smoking completely. And you know, I was a young man. I felt I'm too inhibited with the religious um, circle surrounding me. And I told my sister, Lola, Michael, I really have to move out. And I found a friend, my friend, who in Germany was a friend. He was, he was also going, coming to America as a child group, on the child group. We were together in the same room. And he lives in Brooklyn. And then he lives in a basement apartment, and there is room for me, no problem. He would love to have me. And I decided to move in that with him. And uh, his cousin uh, was also living there. Uh, so we were the three of us, three young men living together. Now, he and his cousin were both upholsterers by trade. This was their trade. And... Um, my friend had a job, uh, a good job as an upholsterer, but his cousin lost his job, and I had no trade at all. No trade at all. So an idea comes to our head, a crazy idea. Why don't we open up an upholstery shop? Because he's a very good upholsterer. And open up, and since I don't upholster, open up a fruit and vegetable store adjoining it. And as the housefrauers will buy fruits and vegetables, they'll see that the upholster will get some business. That was a crazy idea of ours. And we started it. One big problem that we didn't think of. Neither one of us drove, so we had to go by streetcar. Now, we had to go by streetcars to the market in Manhattan by the beach, by the pier, pick out the vegetables and the fruits for them to deliver it early in the morning. So at 3 a.m., we had to be there. So going an hour and a half in the morning, one way, hour and a half back the other way, spending time there, we hardly slept. We hardly slept. During the day, we had to be in the business. Well, the fruit and vegetable store didn't go very well. We were selling it for the neighbors. Sure, they were all buying, but none of them ordered any upholstery. That's where the money was going to be. So we looked at each other and we say, all right, his name was Joe. Joe, how much money do we have left? We had approximately $180, $170 left between us. You know what? Why don't we close up shop and move to California? You heard California. I mean, it's a beautiful 
land and if you're just beginners, why don't we begin? You're an upholsterer, you're going to get a job as an upholsterer. I'll do anything possible and start fresh in a new land in California. Well, the whole family, everybody was trying to talk us out of, and they were telling us, you'll, you'll move to California, there are no Jewish people there, and you'll starve to death, you'll, you'll have nobody. Um, we didn't listen. We bought a Greyhound bus, bus ticket, and we decided to leave, and we said goodbye, and we're on our way to California. We had a very good time uh, seeing the country on the way to California. It took two or three, I think at least two or three days by Greyhound bus come. And we arrived at Los Angeles and the, the uh, bus station was on Los Angeles Street, which was right next street to Main Street. I remember we came out of the bus station and somehow or another we walked to Main Street. Main Street was Skid Row at that time. People drunk laying on the sidewalk. Every few steps there's a drunk man on the sidewalk. And we look around and say, okay, we have very few dollars left. What now? Well, we have to find a place to stay, a hotel. And we see this Roslyn Hotel, beautiful looking hotel, three stories. And we check inside it and it had a sign, a dollar a night. A dollar a night was right for us. We can afford that. So we go into the Roslyn Hotel, we stayed there. And we stayed there. And we're both looking for jobs. Joe is looking for a job as an upholsterer. I'm looking for any work. It was impossible in 1949 to find a job in Los Angeles. Impossible. We checked the newspaper, nothing, nothing. There was an opening in Monrovia. So I took it as a busboy in a hospital. uh, emptying bedpans, anything. But the problem was it took two and a half hours to go and two and a half hours to come back to Main Street, Los Angeles. And uh, it, it was just impossible to work that far away. So after one night, I quit. And here we are in this place. We cannot get a job. We're be running out of money. We're now running out of a dollar a night to pay for our hotel. The hotel manager was nice enough and he says, okay, I trust you boys. You'll find a job, you'll pay me back. He let us stay without paying the rent, the dollar a night. The problem was we're running out of money to eat. Now we started to hug to pawn our clothing, our coats, our jackets, our watches. I I had a ring, anything to get a dollar so we can eat. And after a while, we ran out of money for food. Now, 
we usually ate at a cafeteria, which was only maybe half a block away from our hotel, called Chris, Clifton, Clifton's Cafeteria on Main Street in Los Angeles. And we would eat there usually. <clears throat> now we had no more money. So we would eat and fill our pockets with, fill our pockets with money. Fill our pockets. And one day, usually, we would fill our pockets, pay for a cup of coffee, and then the, 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 my buddy would eat from the foods that I had in my pockets. The next day, he would go in, fill his pockets, and pay for a cup of coffee. This went on for about one or two weeks. I don't even remember. We were ashamed. We were afraid. What's going to happen if they, if they find out? They're going to jail us. We felt terrible for doing something like that. But we had no choice. Anyway, one evening, all we were left with it was about 30 cents. I tell my friend, I said, Joe, you know, I feel terrible. This is one night I really feel like praying. There must be a Jewish community somewhere in Los Angeles. And he agrees with me. He felt the same way. So he says to me, okay, uh, let's find out. And we found out that in Boyle Heights, there's a Jewish community. So we, we board the, the bus, the green car, streetcar, going to Ball Heights. We only had 30 cents between us. The fare was 20 cents each. The conductor comes over and we tell him the story. We tell him, we pull him aside, we tell him the story. We're so sorry, we only have 30 cents between us and we have to get to this Ball Heights, wherever it is, um, please don't let us ride. So he felt sorry for us, and he only punched one ticket for 20 cents. Now we're left with 10 cents. He let the second person ride free. And we finally, finally, the long story, we arrive into a place called Ball Heights. We see nobody around. Suddenly we see a man with a black hat, and and uh, he's, has a pouch, which was a prayer shawl underneath, and two boys next to him. So we yell out to the conductor, let us up, let us up. And without a, a stop sign, he just stopped in the middle of the street. He let us up. He was happy to get rid of us. And we walk over to this man. And in Yiddish, I ask him, are you going to a shul? To a temple, he says, yes, he's going to Rabbi Tarshish's shul, Bethesat Talmud Torah, down the street. So I asked him, can we join you? He says, sure, of course. And we're coming to this temple. There was a rabbi there. He looks at us. He was a little surprised to see two teenagers walk in the temple because all the young people left Ball Heights. Only older people were left in Ball Heights. The young ones were in West Los Angeles. They were they moved to Beverly Hills, to Brentwood, 
and Beverly Wood, anywhere away from Boyle Heights. So we asked, and he was happy to see us, to welcome us. My friend Joe had, um, had, has been ordained as a rabbi in, in Hungary. Remember, even though he was my age, he was a little older, but about my age, he lived in Hungary. In Hungary, they had five years, additional five years of studying the youngsters while I was in one, one place to another running, and I couldn't. My, my, my studies stopped at the age of 10 and sixth grade. But he was ordained because he was very, he comes from a rabbinical family. He was highly educated in, in Talmud. So he asked the rabbi if he could lead the service. But the rabbi was shocked. A teenager would lead the service, and he agreed, certainly. Now, I remember this. My friend goes up on the stage there on the bima, and he puts a prayer shawl on him. I didn't recognize him. He suddenly aged maybe 10 or 15 years. He looked older, and he looked different. His face was shining, and he opens his mouth, and he starts to sing. The whole congregation, everybody stopped with the middle of a breath. They never heard anything like it. And he continued the service. The whole congregation was with their mouths open. They never heard anything like it. I remember he finished the service just like in a queue. Everybody ran to the, to the, to the bima where he was on, and they surrounded him, and they picked him up, and they danced with him like he was some kind of a messiah. They have never experienced so much, they call this kavana in Hebrew, so much feeling and expression and prayers. They, they've never experienced anything like it. So, of course, and Joe was very pleased, too. Uh, he says, he asked the rabbi, would it be okay if he could lead the service the next day, next morning, Sabbath services? The rabbi was surprised. Really? I'd love to, Joe. We would love to have you lead the service. Well, I helped him out a little bit with the singing and so on. So, and he went on, and he was so good, so beautiful. And after he, well, I'll never forget, though, um, when they found out where we live, they couldn't believe it. On Main Street? On Skid Row? No, no, we'll find a place for you. They found Eva, and they, she had a boarding house, and they, she had a room with two beds, and they arranged for us to sleep that night over there. Next morning, we were going to the temple, and as we we're turning the corner, we see a big crowd near the temple. A crowd to us really meant some problems, trouble. 
But this crowd sees us coming and they're going towards us with the smiles on their faces. Word got out that Joe is going to pray, lead the services Sabbath morning. And I guess they filled the temple with people. Other people started coming. Everybody wanted to hear that young man with that beautiful voice. And sure enough, we led the services and everyone picked them up and they were dancing with them. And of course, we had dinner with the rabbi and the con- some of the con- congregants. And then in the evening service again, we were still involved in a Havdalah, which at the end of the Sabbath, uh, a special prayer with, with candles. It was very interesting. And of course, Joe was leading everything. And then after we ate, uh, we, they called us into the office and they offered Joe a job for the high holidays to lead the services. The high holidays were only four or five weeks away and they offered them $150. It was a lot of money in those days. That's when I became his manager and I said, no, we need $250 and we want half of it in advance right now because we had to pay off the hotel, the restaurant, we had to pay off, uh, pull out all the clothes from the hog shop. Um, and they agreed. They agreed to pay us $250. It was a small fortune. So what can I tell you? I remember we, we went to the, to the hotel and we paid off our debt. We pulled out all our clothes from the hog shop. And I went to the restaurant to, 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 to ask for the manager. I came, I came to the restaurant and asked for the manager. And the manager comes out with a smile on his face. And he asked me to come into the office. And I start to tell him what we did. And I offered him uh, $25. I offered him $25 to make up for every whatever we took um, illegally. So he laughed. He says, Mr. Lesser, you did not fool us. We knew all along what you were doing, you and your friend, what you were doing. Why didn't you stop us? He says, you did not look like the ordinary bum. Because of that, we even know exactly where you stood, and you stood in the Roslyn Hotel. We followed you one day, and we came into the hotel. We asked the manager, and we told the manager what happened. The manager tells us that he also trusted us with the rent that we owed the money. They trust us that someday we will get a job, we'll repay him. So, which was exactly what we have done. So he thanked me for doing this, but he refused the money. He says, thank you, Mr. Lesser. What you're doing is wonderful. I'm glad you did it but I can't take the money from you. Enjoy it. I remember walking out of there with tears. 
we did something that he could have arrested us. We didn't look like ordinary bums and they followed us. Imagine. Anyway, our whole life changed from this point on. I'll go a little further. Eva, where we stood in the house, the boarding house where we stood, um, had these two young men uh, staying in her house. And one Friday evening, I think two or three Fridays later, um, we come from, from the temple to the house to have a bite to eat for dinner. And we see at the table there's a couple, Mr. and Mrs. Singer, and his daughter, a beautiful girl, young girl. It was a little awkward. They introduced us to them. And then we sit down to eat dinner. Um, I happened to be sitting right next to this young girl. Uh, her name was Jean, and I'm sitting next to Jean. And we're eating, and we started to talk to each other. And before we knew it, and Joe was holding the whole conversation with everybody and busy. But before we knew it, Jean and I moved away from the table, and we moved to the couch, and we started to talk to each other in the couch. And I asked her for a date. She agreed. So I remember the first date. She picked me up in, in her, her Oldsmobile, I think, Pontiac, in Pontiac. And we went to the theater downtown uh, Los Angeles, I think the RKO Theater. And we, we saw the first movie was called Golden Earrings. It was a beautiful movie with Ray Maland and Marlena Dietrich. It was a beautiful movie. Uh, she, she, was, she was a gypsy woman, and she oh, it's a whole beautiful story. And uh, that movie, of course, became our movie for our life. Um, we always, whenever we have a chance, we watch it again. Uh, it brings back memories. And I married and I became a husband. It goes a little further. Um, I decided to open up an upholstery shop. I wasn't an upholsterer, but now I knew something about upholstery and I decided to open up an upholstery shop and we rented a beautiful uh, corner um, place with a showroom and two rooms in the backs where the people could work. It was beautiful in a sewing room. It was beautiful. And we started, we started. And my, actually what happened, why did I go into upholstery? Um, all right, it's an interesting story. My wife worked for Manischewitz, Nagin Brothers, who was a, uh, who was in Los Angeles, they were the distributor of Manischewitz, and she worked there. And she befriended a person, and he asked her, what does your husband do? She says, well, he works. Um, well, I didn't tell you that part. Um, uh, you know, 
one day they uh, I started to work in an upholstery shop and was I became a little upholsterer. So um so when my my wife tells this man that her husband is an upholsterer, he says, Well, I need an upholsterer. Why? He owned um a, a big uh, housing project on Vine Street in Los Angeles. And um, he had about two or 250 rooms. Every room had a couch and a chair, and a, a smaller chair. And he said all his furniture in the whole building had to be reupholstered. And they talked to me about it. He talk, introduces me, and she talks to me. And I tell him, look, I am an upholsterer, but I never did upholster couches and chairs. I only did chairs like uh, for kitchenette sets. So uh, he says, Mr. Lesser, if you want to, if you think you can do it, I'll help you go into business. And he went ahead and he rented a a place, a beautiful place for us. Actually, we rented it. We found a place. We rented it. And he offered to lay out the money. And he even let us use his credit card to buy material and so on. And he wanted us to reupholster all his furniture. But he says, Mr. Lesser, we won't. We won't rush you. And meanwhile, you can take on more lucrative jobs who pay you better money. I can't pay you much. But in between your jobs, you can do my couches, which we did. It was quite interesting because um, at that point, we didn't have uh, anything. We, we, so we, we rented the store and we had a poster starting a postering. But the problem was we didn't have a truck to bring this furniture to the to the upholstery shop and take it back to the hotel. So um, my father-in-law, Mr. Singer, was a very, very handy man. And I had a little car, a Packard, that I paid, I think I paid $25 for it at the time. Uh, and I was driving it back and forth to work. And um, he took the Packard, he cut it down, he made a flat back on it, so it became a truck. Two people could sit in the cab in the truck, and eight couches can be delivered. It was unbelievable. And we were in business for a while, and this happened for quite a while until... One day I get a letter from the um, from the um, U.S. Um, military, um, and they they asked me to appear to take a physical and to to um, become a soldier. Um, all right, so I went and I did pass one A. I passed my physical, and they gave me. Uh, a certain amount of time to report, and I asked for extension because I was in business. I had to this, uh, this, uh, 
I mean, get rid of all my business and everything. Um, and uh, they agreed. In the meanwhile, my wife was pregnant. She was in her ninth month, and she was driving a car when a, somebody plowed into her. And they plowed into her. She got really shook up, and uh, they didn't have um, um, these belts, you know, safety belts in those days. So she got really shook up, and she went to the doctor, and the doctor told her, "Get Jean, you have to stay in bed from now on till you give birth. She was in her early ninth month, maybe in her late eighth month, and they put her in the bed. So I went to the to the um, um, military draft board, to the draft board, and I told them the story. I needed more time, and they gave me an extension because my wife's illness. And when once my wife had her baby, then what happened is um, everything changed because they only drafted men, married men, but they didn't draft fathers. So now that I'm a father, I wasn't eligible anymore for the service, and I was a free man. And meanwhile, my business was uh, completely um, uh, disturbed, and we got rid of everything, and we were now out of business. I'm out of a job, and my, I'm a father with a beautiful little daughter. Sherry was born, my daughter Sherry, and uh, my whole life changed from that point on. At that point, I didn't have a job, and I would do anything. So I started driving a truck for Manischewitz, delivering um, Manischewitz merchandise through Nagin Brothers. I was driving a truck for them. But I didn't particularly like that, and then I decided I heard there is an opening in a laundry truck. I decided to change job to be a laundry, laundry man, and I had a beautiful route, and I was making good money until one day I meet a driver next to me for eating lunch in another truck. It's a UPS truck. So I decided to talk to him, and I tell him how much I'm earning, and he tells me what he is earning, much more than I, and he's very happy with his job as a UPS driver. So um, I decided to go to UPS. Actually, I was only the third Jewish person that UPS ever hired in Los Angeles, anyway, in California. So uh, they hired me, and I was the only survivor. And once I worked for UPS, a lot of interesting things started to happen. First of all, UPS had a system, they had an incentive system that they sent a time study man with you for two or three days on your route. 
and he studied everything he moved. If you read a label, how long it takes, how long it takes to bend down, how long it takes to lift up a package, how long it takes to walk each step, how many steps stairs up and down, how many steps to the delivery service, and how long it takes uh, to deliver, and how long it takes to get a signature from the other people, how many steps down. Everything was time study, and at the end of the day, they had a pretty good picture as to how much you can produce in, on each hour. So at the end of two or three days driving with you and time studying, they knew that every hour you have to produce X, Y, and Z, so many stops, okay? So many pickups, so many deliveries. They knew everything. And when he came back at night, you turned in your sheets with all the signatures, and they can count by the, the, the number of stops you made and how much time it should have taken and how much time it took you. And then they decided how much pay you should get for that day's work. So sometimes you can take out an eight-hour load and do it in seven hours, come back and stop working after seven hours, but you get paid for eight hours because you had an eight-hour load. Anyway, it's turned out I got very good at this. Now I was taking out 10-hour loads and doing it in seven hours. Every day I got paid for 10 hours. And then instead of going with my buddies, drinking six beer with them. I asked my boss if he needed extra work. You always need it. Oh, John is running late. Can you go help this one, help that one? That was overtime. And I was the highest paid driver in Southern California. So all my buddies were drinking beer after work. I was working after work. And I did other things. I did a lot of things in my job uh, besides just driving, um, which I got paid extra. Nobody else did that. And in fact, they even asked for a reporter. Somebody would volunteer to be a reporter for our station. It didn't pay anything, but it was a volunteer job. Nobody would volunteer. So I, Ben Lesser, who hardly spoke English, decided to volunteer, and I volunteered. And believe it or not, I became one of the best reporters in Southern California for UPS for many years with rewards, all kind of goody things. And I also was a safe driver. I never had an accident. I worked for them 25 years, never had an accident. So I got rewards every year, all kind of gifts for a year of safe driving. Anyway, that extra money that I earned, instead of drinking beer, I decided to invest it in real estate. So I would buy a piece of real estate here, a piece of real estate there, a duplex, a triplex, a fourplex, a fifthplex. 
and all my bodies were scratching their head. Ben, how can you do it? Well, it's, it's not easy, but if you want to, you can. And they, eh, they were satisfied with whatever they were earning. I wasn't. And in the meanwhile, I had to educate myself. I was self-educated. Every night, my family would insist on it. And I would go into the den, they would lock the door, and I would study. I would go to night school. I would go to night college. And I would pass uh, the dean's list one semester after another, 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 another. I wanted to learn. It's not like you go to school because you have to go to school. No, Ben Lesser is trying to catch up. I didn't go for diplomas. I just wanted the knowledge. I just wanted to know. And I learned enough where I was satisfied with myself. After working 25 years for UPS, I decided I'd like to go into real estate. I was now already accustomed to real estate. I was buying real estate, and I, and I, I was fixing real estate and, and working UPS and real estate. And I liked that profession. I decided, Ben, you're going into real estate. 25 years, I have to leave UPS. So how am I going to compete with real estate offices, Colwell Banker, um, Prudential, all of these big offices? Here comes Ben Lesser. He wants to compete against these. Who am I? And it's bothering me. It's bothering me. I have sleepless nights. How can I possibly compete against these people? I got my real estate salesman license, and I was working already part-time in a real estate office, Fagold Realty. I was working part-time there. And my wife, Jean, felt sorry for me, so she got her license also as a saleswoman. And she helped me keeping open house on Sunday. And here on weekends and weekends nights, I'm going to school and I'm working. And I have to become a realtor. I have to learn, pass my broker's test. And I have to learn to become a broker. I have to learn all these things. One night it comes to me. Suddenly I wake up. Ben Lesser, you were a reporter for UPS. And you were winning awards for it. You were good at it. Why can't you write a column? All you need to know about real estate, questions and answers, and see if you can get it into a newspaper. That morning, I ran to the early to the closest newspaper, which was the reporter, a throwaway paper on Third Street, not far from our house. And I asked him, do you have anyone writing by real estate in your paper? He says, no. He wanted a lot of money. I wanted the column in there. I wanted the double column effect. He wanted a lot of money. I says, okay, I'll pay you that as long as I am exclusive. I don't want any other realtors advertising in the, your paper. He agrees. And he gives me a double column 
with my picture on top, all you need to know about real estate questions and answers. And I had a disclosure that I am not an attorney. If you're going to act on any of my advice, be sure to contact your attorney for permission before. Um, and it went and it went and it went. And after about a couple of months, letters started to come into the house with questions. And I had to answer them. And before you know it, the letters got so much that the real estate lady couldn't bring it upstairs anymore. She came to the steps and she whistled. And I had to go down, pull it upstairs. We emptied those sacks full of letters. And we now had to categorize them because we couldn't answer each letter anymore. So we had to categorize them. I remember my wife and I were sitting on the floor every evening and categorizing these letters to answer all these questions. One year, two years, and it was time to open up my own office. But who is Ben Lesser? I was still having sleepless nights. Who knows me? My daughter, Sherry, finds a place on 3rd Street. And it was an interesting place. It had a store in the front and a store in a room behind it. And I had another two rooms after that. So I liked it because it's room to expand. I liked the idea and we rented it. We put up a sign, a big sign, Ben Lesser and Associates. At this point, I don't have an associate yet. <laughs> but... I had to do something that I hated to do. That is called farming. You had to go and knock on the doors, introduce yourself, leave a little gift, telling them you opened up a place, real estate office, if I can be of any help, please call on us, you know. So we leave, we leave a little gift, a card, but I hated to do that because I remember the Fuller Brushman would come and ring the doorbell every time I was studying in the den, and he interrupted me. And here, I'm going to be do, do, doing the same thing to other people. I hated that idea. But I remember the first house I went to. I come to the house. I ring the doorbell. Nobody answers. I felt better, relieved, scratched this one off, and I started to walk away. And as I'm walking away, the door opens up. So I turn around, and I walk back. And as I walk back, I come close to this lady. She says, aren't you Mr. Lesser? I says, yes. Mr. Lesser, I read your column all the time. Come in, come in. I love it. I love it. I made a friend. Suddenly, out of nowhere, I made a friend, and she didn't know what to do with me. I'm a real estate expert who is making house calls. That's what it sounded. And everywhere I went, the same thing. They recognized me. They didn't know how to treat me, how to feed me, what to do with me. So needless to say, I was getting the listings. And before you knew it, you saw signs, Ben Lesser and Associates. 
on, on lawns a lot of places and Caldwell Banker and and, and uh, Prudential they're scratching their heads who is Ben Lesser one day Caldwell Banker's manager comes to my office he says Ben I'm going to give you the top office on our seventh floor overlooking Beverly Hills please come to me of course I wouldn't and this is how it happened. Before you knew it, you saw Ben Lesser signs for sold, sold signs for sale signs, sold signs for sale signs, all over our neighborhood. And agents started to come to us. And I was very particular which agent I would take in. If I took him, they had to abide by my rules and regulations. And a real estate agent, you can't tell them what to do because they're independent contractors. The minute you tell them, they become employees. No, but my way of doing business, you do it my way or you don't come to me. And many of, you, many of them walked away. They thought I was crazy with all the things I wanted them to do. But little by little, they all started to come back because the neighborhood was full of Ben Lesser signs. And thanks God, I succeeded. One day they called me into the office and I see the big shots from all over UPS. There I figured, well, what's going on? Are they going to fire me? Then I figured, well, they don't need all these hype big shots to fire me. Anyone can fire me. And I see smiles on their faces. And then my manager comes down. He says, Ben, you know, the polio vaccine, that the first polio vaccine came out and UPS was honored to be the first carrier to deliver polio vaccine nationally worldwide, nationally, at least in the United States. And it was such a big happening. And they needed a driver, somebody they want to honor, because that driver's picture is going to go on all the newspapers in, in the world, in the world. The first polio vaccine to be delivered. It's a big, big news. And sure enough, they picked me. And this is a picture of me. If you can see, you can see a picture of me um, being honored with the first polio vaccine to be delivered worldwide. And it went all over in all the newspapers all over the world. So it was a big honor that they picked me. Your story is just so interesting. Thank you. When you put it together, it's going to be a beautiful story. And because it, it shows not only survival of the Holocaust, but coming to America and making a beautiful life for yourself and for your family. That is so important. When people think they're down in the dumps, imagine... How much more the dumps can you be when I didn't have enough money to pay for a cup of coffee? 
Um, but we were able to live through all of this and somehow make a beautiful life for ourselves. It's a beautiful story. Is there a message that you want to tell people nowadays based on your whole story? Never give up hope. Believe in yourself. You can do anything that you wish. No one in this beautiful country, America, is going to stop you. Imagine a Holocaust survivor with no education and nothing, how I was able to turn my life around. And it could be done. It could be done. I, I didn't have enough time to tell you details of everything. How I became an upholsterer and what, what I had to do. But all these things shows you that if you will it, and if you work hard, and if you study hard, there is nothing in this beautiful country, America, that you cannot succeed. You can do it. All you have to do is will it and work hard. While individuals can't always choose what happens to them, but whether it's a crisis or calamity, people can choose to either let it ruin their lives or to learn from it and move forward. It's essential to understand that consequences of personal choices, it's possible to let tragedy or trauma become a reason to stop living, but it's also possible to live through extreme circumstances and commit to a life that has meaning a life that matters. Thank you. That is very true, yes. Thank you so much for speaking with me. I hope you'll find Ben's story as inspirational as I did. I talked to Ben for five hours in two different sessions, and in between those sessions, I kept finding myself thinking about him and wondering what would happen next. I would like to mention that Ben has a foundation called Zachol, founded for spreading awareness about the Holocaust. The link and more about the foundation can be found in the description. If you liked this episode, please like and subscribe and tell your friends. This is Eliane Goldstein. Tune in next time to The Effect on Us. And remember, history will not repeat itself. Bye.